A new report details the United Nations' failures in containing the Myanmar military's abuses. International actors need to take a long-term view and listen to what it is that the Myanmar people want and in fact are already doing, and that is trying to rebuild their country without the military involved in politics. And despite being critical of the regime, Indonesian companies have still been selling them weapons. So while on the one hand, Indonesia was doing and saying all these things in support of democracy, human rights in Myanmar, it would appear, on the other hand, was selling weaponry of all different sorts to the Myanmar junta. Plus, we have a rebroadcast of a feature about the healthcare situation and those working in it within Chin State. At first, we intend to run the hospital for uh, CDF patients, but the fights became more serious in Tantlang Township and lots of houses burned down by the military. We ran uh, not only for the CDF, but also for the civilians here. But first, we'll have a rundown of this week's news from the Irrawaddy. You're listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast, a transmission of conflict and culture from inside and outside Myanmar. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. The junta announced last weekend it had begun a pilot census in 20 townships. Officials say the poll must be completed before new elections are held. Those may come in 2025. It's unclear how the census is even possible when the country is in a state of war. And critics say the junta will use its pretext to monitor opponents of its coup, especially those civil servants on strike. You're listening to the trailer of a Chinese thriller called No More Bets. The trending film tells the story of workers trafficked in online scam centers by gangsters. That hit a little too close to home for the Myanmar regime. State media claims the film has tarnished its reputation. Myanmar has become infamous for compounds, especially along the Thai border, that lure and then trap job seekers into forced scamming. Freedom House has ranked Myanmar the second most repressive country in the world for internet freedom, only behind China. Since the coup, the junta has targeted online platforms, blocking access and conducting surveillance on opponents to its rule. A couple weeks ago, we spoke to Waipyo Mint with digital rights group Access Now about pro-regime telegram groups. They, this is also their power-up mechanism, you know, to be able to restrict people's uh, free speech, you know, both online and offline as well. Hundreds of individuals have been uh, arrested and the same event got killed as well. Thailand's oil and gas giant PTT Exploration and Production wants to extend contracts in Myanmar. The civilian national unity government has demanded in the past the company stop payments to the junta, which amounts to some 860 million U.S. dollars a year. In other news from Thailand, the country has invited junta boss Min Online to the Bay of Bengal Initiative Regional Summit in Bangkok next month. They're the only country besides Russia to host the leader since the coup. Human rights advocates have lodged a complaint with Indonesia's National Human Rights Commission, alleging state-owned companies sold weapons to Myanmar's military. That would be in violation of Indonesian and international law. I spoke with Chris Gunnis of the Myanmar Accountability Project, one of the groups asking for an investigation. He first ran down the complaint for me. 
the document is full of pretty compelling evidence that for the last 10 years, i.e. before, during and after the Rohingya genocide, and also before, during and after the coup in 2021, um, three Indonesian state-owned enterprises, um, so the evidence suggests that for the last 10 years, these three companies have been selling arms to the Myanmar junta. So what we have is loads and loads and loads of links to websites of both these three companies with photographs of their top officials meeting Burmese generals, going to trade fairs, releasing press releases saying that there are arms deals being done. Um, there are visits by the Indonesian president to meet these people. Essentially, um, what we're saying to the Human Rights Commission of Indonesia is there is overwhelming open source evidence that while Indonesia was active on the Human Rights Council, actively promoting human rights and democracy in Myanmar, when it signed up to a, a resolution in the General Assembly, which specifically called on UN member states to halt arms flows to Myanmar. So while on the one hand, Indonesia was doing and saying all these things in support of democracy, human rights in Myanmar, state-owned enterprises, it would appear, on the other hand, was selling weaponry of all different sorts to the Myanmar junta. And so were these arms sales happening with the knowledge of the Indonesian government, do you think? I know, just a hundred percent. I mean, one of our one of the complainants is a man called Marzuki Darisman. And Marzuki Darisman was the former attorney general of Indonesia, i.e. part of the state apparatus. I mean, he's a human rights campaigner, a very good man. And he's very clear that as state-owned enterprises, the government, they would have been under the direct control of various officials and that the government would have had oversight over what these companies were doing. So there's no doubt in the mind of Marzuki Darisman that the Indonesian government at a certain level would have had absolute clarity and knowledge on what was going on. Now, it's clear that, you know, the Indonesian government is a, a many splendid thing in inverted commas. Um, it's a very broad church. And I'm not saying that the foreign minister definitely knew that these arms sales were going on. It may be that, you know, it's simply a very opaque world and that the foreign ministry or the home ministry didn't know. Out of countries in ASEAN, Indonesia has been relatively critical of the junta. How do you square this information on arms sales with Indonesia's public condemnation of the military? It, well, it doesn't make very much sense, I have to say, because, you know, Indonesia was so, it's so progressive within ASEAN. Indonesia is the current chair, you know, so it's sad in many ways that we are having to make this complaint in at the very time when Indonesia is sort of gearing up to hand over the chair of ASEAN has, has taken such a progressive and from what we thought principle stand on you know how to deal with the transition so it's in a way regrettable and very sad um the companies themselves have gone through all sorts of pirouettes in sort of first of all trying to deny and then admitting and then saying oh you know maybe since 2016 we have oh there was a rifle competition which required an mou and we had a competition with the tatmador you know, there's all sorts of sort of soul searching that's going on none of it 
particularly definitive. And I think there's a lot more digging to go before these companies are finally smoked out. But interestingly, and to answer your question, the foreign ministry in Jakarta has said it takes this complaint very seriously and it is investigating. And I think that is a very, very good signal. Thank you, Chris. Is there anything else you'd like to say on this topic? There is one bit of background, and that is that this whole complaint came about because we, earlier in the year, with some other um, petitioners, we petitioned the Constitutional Court in Jakarta in order to let us bring a case in Indonesia under the principle of universal jurisdiction. That principle basically says it doesn't matter whether the perpetrator was Indonesian or not, it doesn't matter whether the victim was Indonesian, Indonesian or not, that certain categories of crimes can be adjudicated in Indonesia. And we petitioned the court to say, can we please do a Myanmar case, a case against the Myanmar junta in Indonesia? And they said, you need to find, you being us, need to find a much stronger Indonesian connection. And that is the origin of this complaint. So if we are going to go back and do a universal jurisdiction case in Jakarta, which we intend to do, this Indonesian connection is very important. So it's a stepping stone for us, this complaint, on the way to bringing an unprecedented case under the principle of universal jurisdiction against the Myanmar junta in an ASEAN country. And that's really the trajectory of this initiative. That's where ultimately we want to go and that's the very point of this complaint. That was Chris Gunnis with the Myanmar Accountability Project. The Special Advisory Council for Myanmar, that's a group of international rights advocates, has blasted the United Nations strategy in Myanmar. Their new report details how the UN's relationship with Myanmar's military has harmed chances at peaceful and democratic rule. I spoke with Isabel Todd about the report. She's a coordinator with that group, and she first described past failures of the UN in Myanmar and how that foreshadowed what was to come post-coup. The interesting perspective that the members of SACM have is that they were UN mandate holders on Myanmar during the period before and immediately after the atrocities that the military committed against the Rohingya in Rakhine State in 2016 and 2017. And one of the things they observed during that time was the fact that there had been a massively increased UN presence in Myanmar in the years preceding those events. Uh, and this was in response to the partial democratic transition uh, that the military initiated in well, in the years before, but but really uh, got underway in 2011. And there had been a massive growth in the number of international actors inside Myanmar, including UN actors, with a big focus on development programming. But at the same time, there were these warnings of increasingly severe persecution of Rohingya taking place in the Rakhine state. And the concern was that why was the UN unable to mitigate or prevent those events, despite having such a massively scaled up presence in the country in the preceding years? And so an inquiry was uh, conducted. It was commissioned by the Secretary General into the UN's involvement during that time. And it really found that the reason for the UN's failure was the result of systemic and structural failures across the entire system. At the same time, the inquiry also found that the UN's involvement inside Myanmar with the 
agencies that were acting operating in the country um, were reluctant to raise human rights concerns with the military and civilian authorities. And there was a real uh, effort to try and build relationship with those authorities, as I say, with a focus on development programming. Uh, and in the worst cases, that resulted in the severity of what was taking place in Rakhine being downplayed in reports that were produced by the UN in country at the time. What's been the UN strategy in Myanmar since the coup in terms of this trade-off between access to populations in need for humanitarian reasons and uh, being forced basically to work with the junta? We're seeing in many ways is a repeat of the failures that I just described in the years running up to 2016 and 2017. They're not exactly the same because the situation has changed, but there are many parallels. Absolutely, as you say, uh, there's an attempt to maintain a presence inside the country on the part of the UN agencies that are part of this uh, UN country team. And uh, that is being done on the basis of maintaining a relationship with the junta. And that relationship is based on the assumption that the military is the de facto authorities of Myanmar. And this is what we try to uh, look into in more depth in the paper. By considering the junta to be the de facto authorities, what the UN agencies are saying is that we see the military as being effectively the government of Myanmar, perhaps not in law, it's not the legitimate government, and anyway, UN agencies don't really play a role in recognition of governments, but it is effectively the government. Uh, and this is where we really identify the problem being, because that is not consistent uh, with the realities on the ground. If you look at the military, it doesn't meet the criteria for being a government, in fact, uh, on any count. What should the UN be doing, in your opinion, for the greater benefit of the people in Myanmar? The first and most important thing is that this relationship between the UN agencies and the military needs to be redefined to make it so that it is more accurate with what is happening on the ground, more consistent with an assessment of the law, but also with the position of UN member states that see the military as the military only. They don't see it as this de facto government. We're not saying that the UN can't engage with the junta at all because the junta is there, but the basis of that engagement needs to change. So yes, the UN needs to be engaging with the national unity government. The UN needs to be engaging with ethnic resistance organizations and other resistance authorities as well. They should be engaging in the country in a way that is neutral, independent and impartial. And in order to effectively do that, they have to redefine the basis of their relationship with the military first. What is the biggest threat to Myanmar? What is the biggest risk to Myanmar? It's the military. What is the cause of all of the incidents of violence and atrocity that have taken place in the last two years, the last five years, the last 10 years, the last 20 years? It is the military. I think international actors need to take a long-term view and listen to what it is that the Myanmar people want and in fact are already doing. And that is 
trying to rebuild their country without the military involved in politics. That was Isabel Todd with the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar. And now for a report on the war against the junta, the latest news from the ongoing conflict. Resistance fighters have killed at least 129 regime forces and allied militia members in the last week or so of clashes. Thousands are stuck at the border of China in northern Shan state as they try to flee clashes with the military and the Tong National Liberation Army. At least five have been assassinated in Kachin state's Jade Hub. No group has claimed responsibility. A junta convoy is bringing destruction and looting on its march through Zagang's Salenji township. Tens of thousands have fled. The regime carried out more than 30 airstrikes to the east of the capital Naypyida in September. And urban guerrillas assassinated an arms dealer in Yangon. The Irrawaddy collected the following reports from People's Defense Force and Ethnic Armed Organization sources. You can find more at the Irrawaddy's website in the section called War Against the Junta. The civilian death toll since the coup has reached 4,142. That's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. Since the coup and widespread uprising against military rule, much of Chin State has been on its own for health care. Government-run hospitals can be unsafe to visit. Authorities are on the hunt for those sympathetic to the resistance. Supplies are limited. And many doctors have left their work joining the civil disobedience movement. But over the last two years, organizations and individuals have tried to fill that vacuum of healthcare in a time when the region needs it most. I'm at a clinic in the village of Surkwa in Hakka Township. This is anti-junta Chinland Defense Force or CDF territory. This is an autoclave room and this is a normal liver room. <laughs> Is it hard delivering babies here? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Emily shows me where they make do delivering babies, in a small room on the second floor of a traditional wooden house. She says they lack equipment and medicine for major surgeries. There's a hospital in Hakka, the capital of Chin State, just a couple hours away. But that city is controlled by the junta. If uh, there is a difficulty in handling the situation, we refer the patients to the Hakka. We explain a lot, we uh, counsel, counsel them a lot before we send them to Hakka. Uh, we said like that if you don't go uh, hard to Hakka, and they would be a uh, threat to his life or uh, your baby life, and like that. Even if a patient isn't a member of the CDF, they could have friends or family that are. Authorities can arrest them for any association. Although patients don't feel totally safe at this clinic either, the motorcycles they came here on are parked away from the building. Because if uh, a lot of motorcycles park here, and uh, maybe from the sky, then they can see and maybe uh, this would be CDF, and they think like that, and there would be airstrike. So we're afraid of that. Dr. Emily says this clinic treats around 120 people per week on the three days it's open. It was packed when I visited. She says that's normal. 
She's 28 and was working at a hospital in Yangon when the military took power. She says it was difficult leaving that hospital, coming home to this village. But uh, as a doctor, uh, we feel so sorry about uh, for our patient. So um, it's a very, it, it was a very hard time for us. Uh, I remember that uh, my last duty, I uh, walk around the ward, and uh, I, uh, when I um, see the patient faces, I feel very sorry. Mm. There are seven people who work at this clinic. Most are CDMers. They rely off foreign donations. In neighboring Tantlong Township, the situation isn't much better. Tantlong Town is where the area's main hospital was located. It's been largely destroyed by fighting. Dr. Amos is another CDM doctor who returned home from Yangon to help. He moved into this hospital in Takir village to treat patients. It's out of the junta's control. I spoke to him on a rainy evening just as he finished his shift. To say they're understaffed here would be an understatement. In medical field, there are four major subjects, such as uh, surgery, medicine, OG, and child. <laughs> yeah, I treat all of them. <laughs> uh, for example, as a, I'm a general surgeon, so I do surgery. Dr. Amos is the only doctor. He says the hospital was first set up to treat CDF fighters. That changed as the numbers and needs of refugees grew. At first, we intend to run the hospital for uh, CDF patients, but the fights became more serious in Tantlang Township and lots of houses burned down by the military. So even uh, not only the doctors and nurses, uh, even the civilians, they ran from the uh, Tantlang Township. So we also ran from Tantlang Township and, and it became lots of refugees. And so we ran uh, not only for the CDF, but also for the civilians, yeah. Per month, they have around 500 outpatients, 70 inpatients. The hospital first relied on individual donations, but now they are getting some resources from the Chin Health Organization. That's a nonprofit formed by Chin medical professionals. The group claims to support 17 hospitals and 220 healthcare workers in Chin State. Dr. Amos is grateful, but there's still much that he needs. The most important thing now currently we need is uh, anesthetic machine. We have no anest anesthetist, but uh, uh, I'm also search. Uh, I'm not only surgeon, but also uh, anesthetist uh, currently. Uh, but we don't have anesthetic machine. Uh, anesthetic machine is most uh, more important uh, for some serious illness or some major surgeries. Uh, we can do major, major, some major surgeries because of because we don't have an aesthetic machine here. Just a couple days ago, around nine injured CDF fighters arrived, one with a severe head injury. He had to refer him to Aizal in India. But that journey is tough. It can take days on muddy roads. If he had an anesthetic machine, he would be able to do more surgeries himself here. He says he gets asked a lot about what his hospital needs, but he thinks the best thing for the health of Chin people is to win the war. Uh, I don't want them to prioritize to uh, not to the hospital but to the front line because we need lots of bullets, lots of guns. At a CDF base on a hilltop covered in dense jungle, one fighter shows me a clinic under construction. 
what what is this space? What are you building? Yeah, we built for uh, our uh, CDF army, and we will run uh, the lab, a small lab. Yeah, uh, the troopers, you see that? Uh, yeah. uh, they were trained. Uh, they were trained by NUG lab. Yeah, they uh, they already finished and they they got a uh, certificate. Not only just for our CDF, uh, they will uh, they will continue to provide for uh, the, uh, the citizen, uh, civilian. She says the civilian national unity government is providing some training in blood tests. That's the first time I've come across direct NUG involvement in the shadow healthcare system here. Although they haven't gotten enough support to finish this building. Uh, we have low budget, that's why we can finish in time. Last year, they found cases of malaria. That parasite is spreading rapidly in the region. This year, two CDF members had tuberculosis. Across from the partially built clinic is a shack surrounded by barbed wire. Inside are prisoners, hunter soldiers, and government workers. They're used as bargaining chips for health care in the area. The junta has arrested Chin doctors suspected of helping the CDF. Uh, Sometimes we have a deal. That's why uh, they ask us if you release this person or you release uh, your doctor. Yeah, they, they have a deal. They're hoping to make a trade soon. Doctors are worth a lot here. You've been listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast. You can find links to the stories mentioned here in the show notes, as well as a way to support the Irrawaddy's reporting. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.